Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When the Spanish flu came to San Francisco in the fall of 1918, the city imposed a mask order on residents and backed it up with strict enforcement. Cops are going out, they're just arresting everyone, or fining or arresting people who resisted putting their masks on. That's Nicole Meldahl, executive director of a San Francisco history nonprofit called the Western Neighborhoods Project. And they specifically reference people who had pulled their masks down around their necks so they could smoke their pipes. <laughs> Not even bending the rules for a smoke break. That is strict. And as the San Francisco Chronicle reported at the time, on at least one occasion, frustration with the mask order boiled over into violence. Meldahl recounts the story. It was a man who was standing outside of a pharmacy. He's a blacksmith, and he wasn't wearing a mask. And he was yelling at people um, about the bunk of the city health, health officials and how sh no one should wear a mask. So a police officer approached him. And the guy charged him and, like, beat him over the head with a bag of silver dollars, which is incredibly specific and weird to be holding. And then it, the policeman's um, gun went off. It hit this guy, this blacksmith, in the hand and the leg. He was injured. A couple bystanders were hit as well. No one died, thank God. But, um, but you know, there was a lot going on. <laughs> Emotions were running high, it sounds like. Emotions are running very high. And it's probably fair to say that emotions are running pretty high around the mask issue today as well. But is it possible that with 100 years more experience, us here in 2020 might be able to do, you know, a little bit better than that blacksmith and that cop at hashing this whole thing out? Hello and welcome to another edition of How to Bay Area, the show that tells you how to get stuff done right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Keith Manconi, and today we'll be taking a closer look at masks, the funny face protectors that have sparked so much controversy since this pandemic began, and well, before then too, apparently. Today's program comes in three parts. In a little bit, we'll be looking at what the latest science has to say about mask effectiveness. Masks protect you. We have a lot of evidence for that. Then, once we've finished with the why of masking, we'll get back on brand and discuss the how of it. That is, how to wear masks so that they provide the most protection. With a face mask, you want it to fit well, but you don't want it so tight that it's going to restrict your ability to breathe. 
But first, we're going to head back to 1918 and the last time we faced a global pandemic. Again, Nicole Neldahl with the Western Neighborhoods Project will be our guide. She's been digging into the history of the Spanish flu in San Francisco over the past several months since our current crisis began. And what she's found is a lot of the same struggles we're facing today, especially when it comes to the question of masking. So we're going to pick things up in November 1918. By then, cases were dropping, and it seemed to a lot of people that the threat from the Spanish flu had lifted. So I'm sure you've seen some of the photos. There's some pretty famous ones of everyone on Market Street, like ripping their masks off and tossing them into the gutter, which was to the chagrin of the Red Cross that was like, oh no, all all that good gauze has just gone down the drain. (laughs) So that was the end of the first mask order. But as the word first right there suggests, we now know residents celebrated a bit too soon. By January of 1919, just a few weeks later, a second wave had hit, and by then, the city's patience for masks was wearing thin. By that point, you know, people people had just endured war. They had already had enough. As we're seeing today, they just had enough of dealing with this, this pandemic. And so the city was left in a precarious spot where the pandemic threat was still very real, but the appetite for dealing with it had plummeted. And if this is all sounding a bit too familiar, don't worry. Meldahl says she sees the parallels, too. Deeper in the history, so is it, is it too reductionist to say that it's a, a pretty direct parallel, that they thought that they were done with it and everybody relaxed and then it got worse again? I mean, it seems like a pretty direct parallel. Uh, no, it, it's, it's incredibly direct. I, I can't emphasize enough how much history has repeated itself in terms of 1918 to 2020. Um. <laughs> Some of the parallels are downright eerie. Let's tick through the highlights. In 1918, as today, there was mask shaming. They called people who weren't wearing their masks, mask slackers. Mask slackers. Must have stung. Then there was also, in 1918, that very familiar friction between the imperatives of public health and the needs of local businesses. Is the economy going to survive? Who knows how long this is going to go? We're looking at the same thing today, right? And because the mayor at the time, James Rolfe, refused to shut down businesses when cases surged back up, that led to something else we're seeing today, too, a credibility crisis for those in leadership. They didn't ask businesses to reclose, but they did ask citizens to put masks on. So there was a lot of mistrust going around, and that helped lead to the last parallel we're going to look at. The masking issue got plenty political back then, too. When the flu's resurgence forced health officials to issue a second mask order in early 1919, ambitious local notables banded together to push back against it under the banner of their newly formed group, the Anti-Mask League. While there certainly was plenty of genuine mask frustration, Meldal detects more than a whiff of political opportunism as well. I don't think that they ever really thought this was going to work. I think that they utilized this entire framework um, for their own political advantage. Now, ultimately, the league didn't amount to much. The outbreak died down and the mask ban was lifted not long after it was formed. But it did show that in January 1919, anti-mask politics had a constituency. So, a hundred years have gone by, and still, many of the same stories are unfolding today once again. What are we to make of that? Meldal has some thoughts. Yeah, 
I mean, I like to tell people that um, people haven't changed very much over the years. The tools that we have at our disposal, the social framework that we exist in is somewhat different, but how we react to things really, really hasn't changed. And the way people are reacting to this pandemic, to the mask orders, it's all uh, comes down to human behavior. So it doesn't surprise me that, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't surprise me. I had a feeling there would be some similarities, but when I actually researched it, I thought, oh, good Lord, this is a real one-to-one. <laughs> I know historians are always very reluctant to talk about the lessons of history, but I do wonder if maybe if, if there is anything that you saw in this episode where you thought to yourself, oh man, I really hope we don't do that this time. I hope that we can do a little bit better than they did. Um. Oh gosh. If there's one lesson to take away from San Francisco's experience with the Spanish flu in 1918, it's never think that you have all the answers. Never think that your neighbor is acting exclusively out of something like from a selfish place. When you're in the midst of something like a pandemic or um, anything that's as monumentally historic as what we're experiencing right now, you just have to be empathetic and keep keep your eyes open to everything that's happening around you. Um, and I think the Anti-Mask League specifically, it just threw down such a hard line that when you start posting up sides, it's me against them, it won't help anything come to fruition. It, it won't solve the problem that, that that you're trying to solve together, you know? So I think... And, and also thinking that we're, how do I want to say this? Oh, it's 2020. We're in the future and yeah. we'll lick this thing right away. You know, I think some the laws of, of history don't apply to us anymore. Exactly. That, um, yeah. whatever happened in the past won't, won't apply now because we have better science and better technology and we have computers right. and we have all this kinds of stuff that hasn't allowed us to overcome this any quicker than in 1918. Nicole Meldahl is the executive director of the Western Neighborhoods Project in San Francisco. As that little history lesson shows, none of this was ever easy. But one thing we do have going for us today is an extra hundred odd years of medical research in our back pocket. So if we can put aside all the politicking, all the name calling, you know, don't call anybody a mask slacker, it's not nice. We actually are pretty well positioned now to make some good, science-informed decisions about how we're going to use these darn masks. So let's make the most of the advantage we have and get to know this science. That's what we're going to be doing for the rest of this program, starting with the question, what do we know so far about mask effectiveness? Of course, the messaging here got a little bit muddled early on. For several months, U.S. officials were actually telling residents to stop buying masks, concerned that a mask shortage could leave health workers more vulnerable. But we've learned a lot since then. Study after study has shown that masks do prevent the spread of COVID-19. They do that by blocking droplets we expel from our mouths when we cough, sneeze, or talk. Pretty sure most of you know the story by now. We also learned that it's possible to be infected with COVID-19 and not show any symptoms. And if we can't tell who's infected, we need to act like everyone's infected. 
So the first reason that came out about wearing a mask during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic is to really protect others. Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. And then we've been having data over the last couple of months about how it also can help prevent getting infection to you. Those findings are newer, but Dr. Gandhi and other researchers just released a paper reviewing all the available studies. And based on what they found, they say there's growing evidence that masks can also protect the person wearing the mask. In some cases, preventing infection and in others, making illness less severe. How could this be working? Well, Dr. Gandhi says they're not perfect, but cloth and surgical masks can catch some virus particles before they enter the nose and mouth. What percentage? We haven't done great studies, but it looks like maybe at least 70 to 85 percent. They block out viral particles. They block out the amount of virus that you inhale in. That translates into a lower dose of virus entering the body. Why is that important? Well, Dr. Gandhi believes there's evidence that the immune system is better at dealing with the virus when it's introduced in smaller doses. So if she's right, the equation would run something like this. More masks equals less virus. Less virus means less illness. If that equation holds, that will be yet another strong vote in favor of masking up. Boy, that is one of the best things you can do for a virus is turn it from something scary that can kill you to something mild. That is good for the individual and that is good for society. Uh, well, Dr. Gandhi, you know, in, in, in reading the responses to your paper, it, it does seem like we are on pretty firm ground at this point, thinking that masks are protecting those around us from transmission. Uh, but a lot of the folks uh, in responding are cautioning that... Uh, this argument that masks are protecting us or that the smaller viral dose is maybe leading to less illness. Uh, they're cautioning that, you know, we don't have direct experimental evidence yet. And so uh, this is still just a theory. Uh, what's your take on that? You've looked at the evidence. How confident are you that this uh, quote unquote theory, uh, we should have any confidence in it? Yes, it's a great question. I think it is. It's definitely a theory um, because Anything taken from a theory to a truism requires experimental evidence, and we are simply not going to be ever doing this in humans. Um, however, uh, the next best way of proving a theory is to putting together evidence that's from sort of multiple layers of evidence, and that's what this article attempted to do. And I personally, I can say I have 90% confidence, I guess, <laughs> in this theory. All right, hitting the pause button there on that interview for just one second. We'll return in a moment. But wanted to highlight a point that she just made. And it's important because it's a central challenge as we try to make any claims about masking here. She just pointed out that the reason we don't have experimental evidence for masks and COVID-19 is because you just can't experiment with the deadly disease on human subjects. But researchers are a clever bunch, and they found other, more polite ways to test mask effectiveness— one way is to compare the countries that mask up to those that don't. Turns out the maskers have a lower fatality rate, point in masking's favor. Another is animal studies, including one that showed that a mask-like barrier could help limit illness among an infected group of rather unfortunate hamsters. Take it all together, Dr. Gandhi says even without a clean lab experiment, the data we do have is compelling. We simply will never take a human and, you know, put them on a, in a mask and then shove lots and lots of SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus in their face. It's not going to happen, but I promise that the data is strong enough to believe it. Mm. Well, uh, you know, as we've been discussing, the messaging so far, 
uh, from public health officials has been wear a mask because it protects the people around you. Uh, based on what you're saying, uh, is it your opinion that we should change that messaging to be, you know, wear a mask because it protects you and the people around you? I think that the messaging is pretty clear that the messaging should change to mass protect you. And in fact, I noticed on the CDC website that I think the messaging has already changed. It may not have been put out in an announcement, but if you look at the original April 3rd messaging from the CDC about why we should mask, it says, wear a mask to protect others. Then I looked last week and on July 31st, that guidance has been updated and it says, wear a mask to protect others and to protect you. So I believe that um, not only our research, but other research that has been done by other groups is showing enough evidence that masks protect you that it, the messaging is essentially changed from our you know, primary public health agency in the country and that we should be putting that message out there. All right. Well, in closing, just, you know, I'm curious for your perspective on how this conversation around masking has gotten so muddled. I mean, there's just been confusion from day one. And I, I can imagine a lot of our listeners just thinking to themselves, you know, masks, they're just not that complicated. It's a its a piece of cloth over the mouth. Why has this science been so hard to nail down? Uh, I suppose maybe part of the answer here is the fact that we can't do that direct experimentation. Is that, is that what's making things difficult? I actually um, do not think that it's complicated to nail down. I think it's the evidence is profoundly overwhelming. I think that our politics in this country may partially be causing a problem. And what I mean by that is um, I teach HIV. I'm an HIV doctor. And I, when I teach HIV to students, I will say to them, you know, there's never been a randomized controlled trial of condoms uh, preventing HIV. And everyone's like, of course not. That would be profoundly unethical. But we have evidence after evidence after evidence that condoms prevent HIV. And when you think about science and kind of going back to your high school science class, there are multiple ways to prove things. And yes, a randomized controlled trial where we take half of people in this in this setting of a major surgery in the United States and mask them and half the people we don't. Maybe it would be, you know, one design, it would be totally unethical. And uh, no one would sign up actually because they know masks work. There's a weight of what are called other layers of evidence, observational, epidemiologic, virologic in this case. There is multiple layers of evidence towards masking, meta-analyses putting this together. There's so much evidence that um, I'll tell you that there's not an infectious disease person, a specialist I can think of out there that doesn't think masks work. Uh, and it's just sort of going back to how you define truth. Uh, it is impossible, if it's unethical to define something because you're so certain uh, that there's enough evidence behind it, that gives you a very good hint that it works. Um, and we'll never do a study of condoms for HIV and we'll never do a randomized study where we uh, randomize people in this setting to give masks. Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious disease physician at the University of California, San Francisco. Now for the final segment of today's How To Bay Area program, and we're finally getting to the how-to of it all. For that, we'll be welcoming on now Dr. Kuchika Kupali, who is a Bay Area infectious disease physician and also a biosecurity fellow with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. 
She'll be laying down the best masking practices for us, and I've got to say, the advice she gave in this interview definitely changed how I'm going to approach my own masking routine, so there might be something useful in there for you, too. Quick production note, this interview was originally broadcast as an edition of KCBS In-Depth. You can find the full interview on the In-Depth podcast stream. This is a slightly abridged version. Dr. Prachika Kupali, thank you for joining KCBS In-Depth. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with mask type. Uh, There's a lot of them out there. There are cloth masks, there's surgical masks, there's masks you can make on your own. What does the science tell us in terms of which are most effective? Does it really matter which one I choose? So for people out in the public, um, cloth face coverings can be made from household items like two layers of cotton fabric, t-shirt, bandanas, or uh, even your bed sheets. Uh, There was a study that came out of Florida Atlantic University that did show that when they compared, you know, the bandana type of face mask versus a cone type shape of face mask versus uh, a cotton fabric face mask that had two layers. Uh, Really, it looked like the best type of uh, face mask was one that was a cotton fabric mask that had two layers. And um, so the thicker type of material was a little bit better at preventing onward transmission of droplets. Um, However, the most important thing to think about is with a face mask is that you want it to fit well and again, cover the nose and the mask, um, but you don't want it so tight that it is going to restrict your ability to breathe. Um, and as you alluded to, it is hard to wear one of these all day long. Um, and also one of the biggest challenges with wearing a face mask is uh, because people aren't used to wearing them, uh, they oftentimes will touch them uh, without making sure that they have clean hands. So it's really important that when you're going to wear one of these, that you always make sure to uh, wash your hands with soap and water or use alcohol-based hand sanitizer before touching them because you don't want to infect your face mask um, because then you could potentially infect yourself. When using a cloth face mask also, it is important to make sure to keep it clean because you you don't want to infect yourself with other things. So you want to wash them routinely with soap and water or laundry detergent to prevent contamination. I guess let's uh, stay on the the cleaning issue for just one second. So some of the guidelines that I've seen online are saying that washing it in uh, a wash basin with, I mean, if you don't want to run up the whole uh, washing machine every single time you come home, uh, would a wash basin with some warm water and some detergent, would that be a good substitute? Yeah, that would be fine. Um, And then you could just air dry it. Um, The key is is that you just want to make sure they're clean. You don't want to be wearing a face mask for, you know, seven days, two weeks, a month, right, without making sure it's been cleaned. You want to make sure that it's it's clean. We have other bacteria and viruses in our mouth, and so if we are wearing our cloth face mask as we are supposed to be appropriately, uh, we want to make sure that we're cleaning it. So... Um, you know, just think of it like your socks. You want to change it every day. You want to change your face mask every day. 
the so here's the mask method that I have been using, and I guess I should. It, it sounds like it's probably not up to snuff, and so uh, maybe I should uh, just face reality. But let me just run it by you to see if it uh, passes muster. So. What I've tended to be doing is, you know, I've got to go out of my car and back into my car several times throughout the day. So whenever I get in my car, I hang my uh, mask up on one of the little rings in my car and then I drive around. And then when I get to the next spot, uh, I put the mask back on, doing my best not to touch the mask itself as I go. And uh, then when I get home at the end of the day, uh, to be honest, I I hang the mask up and uh, leave it there for a couple of days and uh, a few days later, I'll, I'll use it again. I mean, I, I guess the, the theory that I'm working on is that it's not that the COVID-19 virus doesn't really last all that long on any surfaces. So if you leave it there long enough, maybe it's dying off. Uh, how, how wrong am I to be operating this way? Well, so first off, what kind of mask are you using? Are you using a cloth face mask or are you using a disposable cloth face mask? Actually, uh, I'm using a cloth mask. My uh, mom was nice enough to sew me a couple, so I'm using these uh, nice, thick, homemade masks that uh, she made. Okay, well, okay, that's good. So, um, a couple things. So, first off, I definitely would not hang it out in your car. I think the best method you want to make sure to keep your mask as clean as possible is um, when you get in your car, uh, if your mask, you know, before you put your mask on, I'm going to keep hammering this point home is make sure your hands are clean. Uh, When you put it on, only touch the ear loop pieces and put it on. Uh, Make sure to cover your nose and your mouth, right? And then really try your hardest not to touch it. And then uh, when you get into your car and you take it off, make sure to wash your hands before you take it off. And then what I would do is actually have like a brown bag or something and put it in there to keep it clean and safe. have a designated um, bag to put it in. So put it in there. And then when you get to wherever your next destination is, make sure to clean your hands off again because your car, um, your steering wheel, whatever other objects in your car that you might touch, like your radio, those are high touch surfaces. And uh, I don't imagine you're cleaning them down all the time. Uh, There's risk of bacteria and viruses on those objects. So clean your hands off again, and then reach back into that brown bag and touch the face mask by its ear loops and put it back on again before getting out of your car. So that's what I would do when you're out and about. And then when you're at home, again, I would not be uh, reusing these masks after multiple days, I would, you know, wear it for one day and then uh, just put it off to be washed because we're not just worried about COVID-19, right? We're worried about other bacteria and viruses. So we have a lot of different bacteria in our mouths. And if you're wearing that mask properly, the bacteria are going to um, get on the face mask as well. Yeah. No, okay. That... That all makes sense. I mean, I kind of felt like it really wasn't the best way to approach things, but it's there's there's just so many things to uh, deal with in this new COVID world. You know, every every other little precaution you do adds uh, a little bit of complexity to your day. I suppose, uh, as a physician, you know that better than anybody with all the uh, I'm sure safety procedures that you need to take in your your clinical work. Um, just a just a few minutes left, but I, I'm curious for your thoughts on how you think about that extra imposition and and how you make it work in, you know, in a practical sense in your daily life? Sure. Um, You know, I do think that I, in some ways, have the benefit of the fact that this is something that I've been training and doing for a number of years. And so 
some of it becomes part of my own muscle memory. Uh, but it, it's definitely not easy. Uh, I think that I worked on the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa, where I had to learn to become extremely mindful of everything that I touched and everything that I did. And I had become very um, uh, purposeful about every motion that I made and uh, washing my hands. And again, when you start doing that all the time, it becomes part of your muscle memory. And um, I think over time, if people start uh, adopting some of these practices, they too will become part of their own muscle memory to the point that it'll start to feel like um, almost strange to be going out without wearing a mask. Uh, that being said, I think that uh, the most important thing is trying to be um, develop these small habits that are uh, important yet impactful into your life. Um, and also trying to um, be mindful. I think those are the best pieces of advice that I can give people because it is overwhelming, but it's also going to take time for you to be able to incorporate them into your life. I think that is really wise advice. And I suppose there's nothing to teach you about medical safety, like uh, something, you know, like uh, dealing with Ebola and the threats that that raises. Uh, just a, a couple of minutes left, but I really want to do just a very quick lightning round, see how many uh, of the uh, smaller questions that folks might have about masks. We can tick through very quickly. Let's start with uh, face shields. I know that uh, folks have uh, questions about the, the clear face shields that can go down in front of your face. Um, are Should those be considered a substitute for masks or uh, just something that adds to the protection of masks? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. And uh, there are people that are doing work on that. And in parts of the country, uh, they're being used quite a bit. And I think, again, it depends on the type of face shield you're using. With a face shield, you want one that's going to come down below the chin, and you want one that's going to go around to both ears. And uh, I think face shields offer some wonderful protection. Uh, they are not as uncomfortable as wearing cloth face mask. And um, another really great benefit of a face shield is that you're not covering up your nose and your mouth with a uh, Cloth, so you can still see people's facial expressions and their um, uh, their mouth moves. So if it's hard for you to uh, hear, um, you can still make out some of the uh, words that they're saying by reading their mouth. Um, and also because they are a bit more comfortable, people aren't touching them all the time. So I think that um, we're still figuring out um, how they can be used well in the public, but I definitely think that there's a very good path for them. All right, uh, just a couple more questions to tick through. Um, are folks wearing a mask? Uh, do they no longer need to socially distance? He asked very leadingly. That is incorrect. I would recommend that if you're wearing a mask, you still need to physically distance. Again, um, we need to do uptake all these uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, it would be wearing a mask, physically distancing, and maintaining good hand hygiene. And N95 masks are obviously very difficult to get your hands on at uh, this point, but uh, if, if you can get an N95 mask, is that going to add extra protection to the average citizen? No, an N95 mask is not going to help the average citizen. Um, you know, a couple things about N95 masks. Number one, for them to be... Uh, 
providing appropriate protection, you actually have to go through a special type of testing uh, for the N95 to make sure it is appropriate for you. It's called fit testing. Um, and then number two, even in the hospitals, we're only using them for uh, healthcare workers that are involved with what we call aerosolizing uh, procedures. So things like intubating or if they're doing a procedure to sample fluid from a patient's lung. We're not using them for everyone. These are very difficult to come by um, resources, and I would highly recommend that if you're lucky enough to have them at your disposal, that you um, consider donating them to your nearest hospital or healthcare facility. All right. Two more very quick questions. Still important to wear masks outdoors. I mean, it's it's known that the extra airflow and the extra sunlight uh, perhaps adds some protection. So masks still needed when you're outside? I think it depends the context of what you're in. I think if you're by yourself and you're going for a walk, then uh, and you're not around anybody else. Sure. I think it's fine to not necessarily wear a mask. But I think if you're with other people, even if you're going for a walk or something, I would definitely wear a mask when I go for walks with um friends or family members, I always make sure to wear a mask. And finally, there is a concern, I would say, mostly spreading through social media and very various other unconfirmed sources that uh, masks reduce the blood oxygen and increases the carbon dioxide in your in your body. Is, is there anything that that's based on? Is there any science to that whatsoever? No, that's absolutely false. That is a myth. Listen, we have um, surgeons who work in the operating room for 12, 14 hours at a time, sometimes longer doing surgery. They wear masks. They don't have decreases in their blood oxygen levels. We have, um, that would be the best piece of evidence I can give you right there. But no, if you're wearing a mask, um, it should not be decreasing your blood oxygen level. Um, There's no data to support that. Well, hopefully that is a load off the shoulders of uh, some of our listeners out there. Last, last topic that I want to touch on before we close things out, you know, throughout the course of this program, we've been talking about how fraught the mask topic has been, how difficult the conversation is shaping up to be, and, you know, just how much anger there is on every side of this thing. And I think that you actually have a pretty useful perspective here because through the course of your work, you found yourself on the receiving end of uh, some of that mask anger. So if you could tell us a little bit about what your experience has been. Yeah, so I've definitely felt the heat over masks. Um, I've had people who found my email and send me messages, people who have sent messages over social media and uh, direct messages that way. Uh, and I understand that, you know, people have very strong feelings about this, but I also wish that people could see that all of us who work in medicine and in public health and uh, this aspect of the response, um, all the uh, recommendations we're making are for the overall good of the public and the global community. None of us want this to be going on. None of us want this to go on any longer than it needs to. We really just want to do everything we can to try and help uh, to end this pandemic because we're seeing all the horrible and negative repercussions of this outbreak. So just given the the tenseness of this current situation and your own personal experiences with it, what then do you take to heart as somebody who's going out into the world and trying to communicate on this topic? How how has that knowledge of the, the tenseness of the situation informed how you approach this? I think that, you know, one of the things that I always try and remember is that 
you know, for a lot of the times, the people that are sending those negative messages or targeting me or my colleagues, uh, there's probably going to be another 1,000 or 2,000 that appreciate all the work we're doing. And I try to remember that because that's really important. And I've gotten a lot of really wonderful messages from people who appreciate the work that we're doing and the education that we're doing. And so I try to hold on to that. And I also try to hold on to the fact that there is a large portion of the population that just has not been appropriately communicated to or gotten the appropriate messaging. And that's part of the reason I do things like these podcasts and I do interviews and I try to put myself out there. And I think it's a very important thing that those of us who work in this field do at this time, because part of the science is how we communicate it and the communication and the education and the community engagement are all critical to the work that we're doing. And so we have to make sure to try to find ways to disseminate the information appropriately for the public. And I try to think about all that and the work that I do and hold on to the fact that maybe something I say, something I do is going to resonate with somebody and make a positive impact. That was Dr. Kuchika Kupali, a Bay Area infectious disease physician and a biosecurity fellow with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. This has been another edition of How to Bay Area. Remember, you can find past episodes online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard, do, of course, feel free to leave a rating and review course makes us feel better also helps other people discover the program until next time i'm keith manconi stay safe be well maybe wear a mask too see you next time this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.